When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 14th. On today's show, we'll talk about how Google has been tracking and storing your location, even after you asked it not to. Then we'll review some of the disturbing security news out of DEF CON, the annual hacker conference in Las Vegas, including a demonstration in which an 11-year-old managed to hack a voting machine. And that happened in less than 10 minutes. All right. That actually is disturbing. Later, we'll be joined by Dana Hull, a reporter for Bloomberg News, who covers the electric car company Tesla and the space transportation company SpaceX. What those companies have in common, of course, is their CEO, the enigmatic Elon Musk. We'll ask her what to make of Musk's latest machinations, including his surprise bid to turn Tesla back into a private company. And lastly, we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we found online this week. All right, April, how are you doing this week? I'm okay. I didn't have time to grab a sweater before I left the house. And since it is summer in the Bay Area, it is very kind of chilly outside. But uh, beyond that, everything's somewhat normal. Uh, Will, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I am kind of jealous of you needing a sweater. It's muggy here in my new home in Delaware. Um, I've moved in like two weeks ago, and I'm, I'm trying to get the hang of small town American life and, and all the exotic customs that go with it. So <laughs> right. like, for instance, I'm trying to figure out, can I just go ring my neighbor's doorbell or do I need to like, you know, get their number and send them a text before I just, before I just pop on over? I don't know. I, I, there's certainly no public transit to, to take you anywhere. So you have to either walk for 30 minutes or drive for five minutes, right? It's these kinds of dis- decisions that you make in, <laughs> in kind of suburban areas, I think. <laughs> I'm I'm super lucky. I live right downtown in Newark, and the Amtrak okay, zooms by my house on a on a an hourly basis. So I hate their uh, Wi-Fi, but I love Amtrak. Uh, <laughs> but I use their Wi-Fi. <laughs> I hate the Wi-Fi. I love the train. Okay, speaking of finding new ways to acclimate to age-old problems, I suppose, Google and location tracking are back in the news as the uh, two topics seem to intersect every few months. What's happening this time, Will? All right, so on Monday, an investigation by the Associated Press revealed that Google has been tracking and storing the location of users even after they've gone into their settings and turned off a a feature called location history. So when you turn off location history – you think, and, and you know, the text that Google gives you seems to support this, that you have told Google to stop keeping track of where you go all the time, whether you're on your Android device or your iOS device that has Google apps on it. Um, but in fact, what the AP showed was that Google still has other ways to uh, track and store your location data, and it's still keeping a profile of places you go. It's just keeping it in a different place, and you have to go through a whole different Uh, menu and and set of menus to turn that kind of tracking off. Okay, so let me get this straight. Uh, You can opt out of tracking, but then you're not actually 
not being tracked anymore? Is that what's going on? Right. It turns out that you've opted out of one particular tracking database oh called your location history. Google. And you can actually, this 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 database is kind of cool. I mean, if you forget about the privacy implications for a second, you can actually go and and look at it. Uh, if you're a, a, if you have a Google account, you can go and and see all the places you've been with your phone in the past several years. You can see a timeline of where you were and which places you've spent the most time. Google collects all of this both to, to serve you with its various apps, like to, to predict in Google Maps where you might be headed next, but also for other purposes. We know that Google is an advertising company that relies on fine-grained personal information to target its ads. So it's probably not shocking that Google was also storing your location data in other places, but I think the AP was certainly right that Google did not make this clear. Google's stance is that, oh, we do, sure, if you go into this other menu, it'll tell you that you can turn off location there. But I I don't think anybody really knew that this was happening. I mean, I'm under the impression that when I toggle something to stop doing it, then it will stop being done. And, you know, I know that Google is an advertising company and it needs data, it says, to, to cater those ads. But there has to be some world in which when you opt out of certain types of privacy invasive, uh, you know, measures from the company, that they can still serve you ads that are perhaps just not as fine tuned, right? Like, I don't even see how this necessarily kicks Google in the pocketbook that hard for them to actually respect the privacy settings that their users ask for. It's just so disrespectful. And it's also so common that we see these kinds of problems where, users, uh, f- you know, flat out request for something and then it doesn't come to fruition. I'm I'm trying to think of other instances. Facebook, for example, you uh, in order to opt out of their location tracking or not just location, but their browsing tracking around the web, even if you don't have a Facebook account, you have to then create a Facebook account to get them to stop tracking you. I mean, there's just all of these kinds of Hula hoops that you have to jump through in order to be respected by these two dominant advertising companies on the Internet. It's its its really um, absurd and offensive. Yeah, and, and I think you can – I mean, there are some valid reasons why Google might need to track you for certain circumstances. Yeah. Certainly for, like, emergency calling. It wants to be able to triangulate and find where you are if you make a 911 call. In fact, I think it may be required to do that. But the misleading advertising here where – you actually so the menu you have to go into if you want to turn off that other kind of tracking is under something called web and app activity and if you turn that off then it actually turns off all kinds of other tracking that basically renders Google Assistant and other Google services pretty much useless so i think Google has to come up with a better way of doing this and and hopefully they'll respond to this this investigation i don't know if they'll respond i mean i feel like i've heard these types of investigations before and google hasn't done anything i will say also that the whole they might have to do this argument doesn't quite make sense to me i need to read more about you know the spe- the specifications of the way 911 works with mobile phones but there's certainly has to be a civil liberties like protecting option wherein if one decides they do not want to be tracked then they are not being tracked you know especially if they're not using these products or if they you know maybe they they try to delete the information i mean i'm not even sure that if you if you stop using google products on your phone they stop tracking you at this point right because these types of stories just keep popping up and there are ways though uh, I, there was a great story in wired from emily dreyfus about how to 
stop being tracked on Google. Uh, it does uh, take a, a, a bit of meandering around, uh, you know, different um, permission screens, but there are ways to opt out of it. And if this is something you're concerned about, I'm concerned about it, I might look into it. Uh, I, I recommend it because there are certainly a lot of valid reasons why you don't want to be so hyper catered to by advertising companies, you know, as you walk through every inch of the world, every minute of the day. So... Yeah, that's a good idea. I often turn off my GPS on my phone, actually, just so the phone doesn't send any location data except when I'm using something like Google Maps or Yelp. Right. Uh, but, but let's move to some other news around security in the tech world. Last weekend in Las Vegas was DEF CON, the annual hacker convention. They had a section of the conference called Voting Village, where they bring out decommissioned voting machines and people try to hack them. This is the second time they've done that. And April, I understand the results of those hacking contests were... Maybe not that encouraging if you're the sort of person who who wants to believe in the integrity of our, our voting system. Yeah, you know, they had this one section this year that was kind of uh, hacking voting machine systems for kids, which I think was really smart. Uh, not And and also I want to, to underline this with saying that some kids are actually really, really good hackers. So the fact that they're young doesn't necessarily make these like worse than if an adult could do it um, and like more power to the smart young people in the world. They're our future. So there was an 11-year-old boy last Friday at the DEF CON convention in, in Las Vegas uh, who was at the, the, the kids' hacking area uh, for the voting machines. And he was able to hack into uh, this this kind of replica that was created of a Florida state election website. And he was able to change the voting results uh, that were that was on the election website. And he was able to do this in less than 10 minutes. Uh, and and then um, a, a, a young uh, 11-year-old girl was then able to do this in less than 15 minutes. Uh, she managed to make changes to the same uh, voting website in Florida. Florida is a swing state that has been the subject of major controversies in terms of vote counts. So, you know, it's a particularly sensitive detail, uh, you know, here in the U.S. when we when we think about places where we might have a screw up. Yeah, it was actually, I mean, Florida is part of the reason we had this big push toward voting machines, right? Because we had the whole controversy with the hanging chads in Bush v. Gore and, and the the flaws and failures of the paper voting system. And everybody was like, oh, let's put voting, let's do voting electronically. That'll solve everything. But we've been hearing almost ever since from technologists that these voting machines are not secure and that this has the potential to be a huge debacle. One thing I'm curious about, though, is so I've been I've been reporting sporadically on problems with voting machines for I think like 12 years now, but we haven't had like the one spectacular hack that we know of where somebody swung an election by hacking into a machine. Do you have any idea why? You know, one one of the things with the hackable voting machines, one of the reasons why it perhaps hasn't been this huge, huge problem that it could be quite yet is because a lot of these machines do produce a paper trail still that allows people to verify what their vote uh, said and also then allows for a more accurate recount. Now, not all of these voting machines do also provide a paper ballot after the after the vote is cast. They don't provide some kind of an auditable paper trail. And, you know, looking at this website, verifiedvoting.org, that has been tracking the uh, voting machines used across the country now for, for many years, and it's a, it's a fantastic resource I recommend people check out who are worried about this, and, uh, and their, their verifier map of uh, voting machines across the country, it's, it looks like over a dozen uh, – States are still using machines that don't have a kind of uh, paper audit trail. 
um, or, you know, uh, these kinds of printers that would allow someone to then verify what, you know, what their vote has said. Yeah, I saw there was a good comic in the the comic strip XKCD recently about voting machines. And the, the characters ask an aircraft designer about the safety of airplanes. And the designer's like, oh, airplanes are very safe. We have, uh, they're incredibly resilient. They're actually the safest way to fly. And then they ask building engineers about elevator safety. And that, and they're like, oh, elevators are protected by multiple tried and tested fail-safe mechanisms. They're almost incapable of falling. And anyway, they go through a few of these. And then finally, they get to uh, computer scientists and ask them about voting machines. And they're like, don't do it. Don't use voting machines. They're totally insecure. We have no idea what we're doing. Right. You know, bury it in the desert. You know, and I think it was in January 2017 when the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security at the time, Jet Johnson, uh, did declare that uh, America's voting infrastructure was part of the critical infrastructure for the country and therefore would receive some sort of national attention and assistance for making sure it was secured. It does not seem that it has received the attention that it deserves, especially if it is just so penetrable to hackers. But uh, November is just around the corner, and there's still time to invest. I don't know if it's going to happen overnight, but uh, I would certainly feel better if it did. All right. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Dana Hall. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Dana Hull. Dana is a business reporter for Bloomberg News in San Francisco, where she covers Tesla and SpaceX. So basically, she has the best beat in all of business journalism. Or maybe it's the worst beat. I'm not sure. I guess it depends how much you like sleep and free time. Certainly hasn't been a boring beat. She has been the author of such canonical Tesla headlines as Tesla doesn't burn fuel, it burns cash, and hell for Elon Musk is a midsize sedan. That, of course, referring to the Model 3, which Tesla is still scrambling to build. Prior to joining Bloomberg in early 2015, Dana worked at the San Jose Mercury News, where she covered Tesla, clean technology, remember that, and California (laughs) energy policy. Uh, And uh, I've been following Dana's work even longer than most because I I interned at the Mercury News way back in 2004 and was reading her stuff. Um, So she's been on this beat longer than most people have even heard of Tesla. We're very lucky to have her on here. Dana, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Great. So we kind of want to get started with setting up the news a little bit because so much has been happening. I think a lot of people can't quite claw their way out of it yet. What's going on with Elon Musk's effort to take Tesla private? So this is a big bombshell. I mean, he has spoken quite publicly about wanting to take Tesla 
private, you know, for a while now. I mean, he mentioned it in the Rolling Stone interview that came out last year. He's mentioned it to us. I mean, he also runs a private company, SpaceX. Um, And then we had this epic earnings call in May where he kind of had like a meltdown and was really rude to some of the analysts and was like, this is boring. Stop asking these boneheaded questions. So it's not really a surprise that he wants to take Tesla private, but the way that he did it was very surprising. I mean, he just sort of like dropped this bombshell on Twitter. And at first people thought it was a joke because the tweet said something to the effect of thinking of taking Tesla private at $420 a share funding secured and people were like 420 is that like a pot joke like is he was he hacked like i mean even you know there was like a lot of consternation like is this real or not and then when it became clear that it was real people were like oh my god like what what's going on yeah and and your colleague matt o'brien has written a couple columns that have been interesting about just how weird this is the manner in which he's trying to take tesla private let's zoom out a second i mean what what's the advantage for musk of taking tesla private or what would be the advantage for tesla yeah so so i guess first of all when you when you go public it's like this big event right you go to you go to wall street and you ring them you ring the bell and it's like you're, it's like you're coming out party but it's really a financing mechanism and then but once you are public you're under enormous scrutiny uh, from investors you have to disclose all of your financials every quarter you have to have these earnings calls and i think frankly like he just is tired of that he's been doing it now for 8 years He's a busy guy. I mean, he's got a lot going on. He's about to send human beings to the International Space Station with SpaceX. He wants to build all these other factories. Like, I think he just finds the sort of constrictions or the um, the conventions of being a public CEO really annoying. And I think that that became very clear in May. And the advantage is that he just wouldn't really have to deal with that. I mean, he'd still be he'd still have to sort of be accountable to the investors in the private company, but he wouldn't be under the enormous scrutiny that Tesla is now. And I think as Tesla has ramped the Model 3 and as Elon has just become basically like the tech world and the business world sort of biggest, larger-than-life figure, I mean, there's nobody who really comes close to him, just the stress and the scrutiny and the fact that, you know, journalists and short sellers and haters and people on Twitter, like he's just under like he feels like he's under attack. And he, I think he's just like, screw this. I'd rather go dark. Like, I, I, I know. And but now it's like, well, OK, so where are you going to get the money to do this? And what's been fascinating to everybody for the past eight days is that. He sounded so solid, like he's got it in the bag. And now it sort of sounds like, well, he's like talked to some people and people have expressed interest, but there's not like a deal done yet. And so um, per usual, he's been like a bit exuberant and perhaps aggressive in his public pronouncements versus what's actually on the table. Yeah, there's something a little bit, and some people have pointed this out, there's something a little bit Trump-like in in Musk in terms of his relentless tweeting habit, for one, and, and his sort of lack of a filter on Twitter. He'll just say anything. Um, in terms of his bashing of the media, um, you know, he's, he's taken to uh, disparaging the media on a regular basis. And he, he proposed maybe half-jokingly setting up a site called Pravda where people could rate the media by credibility. Um, I think, you know, his in his mind, all the people unfairly criticizing Tesla would probably get really bad ratings on the site. Uh, and uh, he also is, he has no patience, as you said. He seems to run his companies partly by whim. But what is Elon Musk really like from what you can tell? I mean, is is he coming unhinged, as some people seem to think? Or is he just living on the edge the same way that he's always been? And that's just how he's always going to be. 
I think it's the I think it's the latter. I mean, first of all, you know, I, to be clear, it's not like I'm like best friends with Elon Musk. I don't like talk to him and have dinner with him, but like I have followed his career and I've seen him and met him several times and he's like in person, he is incredibly funny and like sarcastic. He's got a great sense of humor. He's really well read. Um you know, he does not like to waste time, but if you sort of, you know, I mean, he he will indulge you with your questions. I mean, he's a great interview because if you ever do get time with him, he's very sort of frank and upfront and candid, and he's not canned the way that most public CEOs are, and that's what's so refreshing about him to so many people. Um, and I, but I don't think that he's. I mean, is he becoming unhinged? You know, it's just it's hard to say because he's under so much more scrutiny now than he ever used to be, and I think that in this time of social media. Everything is sort of amplified and inflamed more than it used to be, and um, you know, and and that's just and that's only sort of accelerated in the past five years. And so, um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't have enough insight into his mental health to know, you know, un- unhinged or not. I think that clearly, you know, he had. I mean, I think the May earnings call was was sort of a a, a breaking point for him. But then he apologized for it very contritely and made a real point to make that apology on the last earnings call. So, um, but I also think that what he's trying to do is unlike what anyone else has ever tried before. And that's why so many people really love him. And to your point about how Musk is very Trump-esque, I think the more fascinating thing is that, you know, there's this real confirmation bias around around Elon. And so, not just, you know, he is Trump-like in the way that he tweets, but the way that people respond to him is very much like red state, blue state in terms of um, really, you know, egging him on or 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 feeling like he's a fraud. It's, it's, it's just it's fascinating. If you just look at Twitter, it's like blue state. It's it's just it's just really interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of, of Steve Jobs. People used to say he had the reality distortion field, right, where everybody around him just believed that the impossible was possible. And it seems like Musk maybe as much as Jobs, maybe even more, has that going for him as well. Yeah, and I think what's important to remember is that a lot of things that Elon Musk has set out to do, no one thought was possible. And then once he achieves those things, like the benchmarks move. And so people have been doubting him ever since he began. I mean, no one ever thought that SpaceX was going to fly a rocket, and then they did. And then no one ever believed that SpaceX would successfully land a rocket on a drone ship, which they've done now several times. And, you know, so it's like there's always there's always something that people don't believe he's going to be able to pull off. Like no one believed that they would be able to make a sexy electric car. They did. No one believed that they would able be able to make the Model 3. OK, so they had trouble making the Model 3, but now it kind of seems like they're making it. Now no one believes that he will take be able to take it private. But I think he's just someone who he's so used to being doubted and that like when people doubt him, it really kind of steals his resolve. And he really does sort of delight in proving people wrong. You mentioned SpaceX and 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 burning money and being able to do that without the scrutiny of of being under a public company with that. SpaceX does burn a lot of money, doesn't it? I mean, or at least when when a rocket explodes. Well, SpaceX is a very different company. And I think and I think what's that's what's really important to stress is that because Tesla is public, the world sees Elon as the CEO of Tesla. And, they, and there is kind of this perception, I think, that still lingers that like SpaceX is just kind of like his private little project or like it's like, you know, it's like it's his little sideshow. That is like absolutely not true. SpaceX is the company that Musk founded by himself mm-hmm. as soon as he got out of PayPal. And then he got he, and then he got involved in Tesla very early on as an investor and sort of took Tesla over. But SpaceX is his first love. He lives in L.A., SpaceX is in L.A., and SpaceX has, like, enormously huge contracts with 
really important customers like NASA, the U.S. military, and like the world's leading satellite operators. So yes, I mean, and when when a when a rocket blows up, there's insurance. So I mean, they you know I don't know what their revenue is. They have paying customers, and it is a very well run company, and they are about to send American astronauts to the International Space Station. So it's just it's a completely different company run completely differently. One big difference between Tesla and SpaceX is that Tesla is making a consumer product, right? And and right, you're not going to buy a rocket. Difference, yeah, yeah major and, difference. And Musk, you know, grappled with the fact that his cars have been involved in wrecks. And one of his uh, favorite things to say is that you know human driving is so dangerous, and you know autopilot is is going to be so much safer. There's not a lot of data to prove that because there hasn't been a lot of data collected about the safety. There just haven't there aren't enough autopilot cars on the road to know. It seems. But do you have any thoughts about you know how he's been dealing with the safety of his cars? To your point, I mean, right, a rocket is not a consumer product, and they don't really have to make that many of them. I mean, they make the rockets at their factory in Hawthorne, but we're not talking about thousands. We're talking about, like, you know, I don't even know what their run rate is, but they maybe make 30 a year or so. I mean, you know, it's a big production facility, but, I mean, just in terms of volume, you don't really need to make that many, whereas, you know, Tesla's now supposedly making five to 6,000 Model 3s a week. Um, But, yeah, I mean, cars are, like, you know, they are highly regulated, lethal devices that, you know, across, I mean, that, that are responsible for, you know, killing people and accidents. And uh, as, you know, the the regulations in Washington have waxed and waned, I mean, there's been this big march towards making cars safer with things like automatic emergency braking and, you know, rear-facing cameras and more sensors inside the cabin to alert drivers to things like drowsiness and now, you know, autopilot or what other automakers call ADAS. I mean, there's just a, a whole suite of kind of electronics coming into the vehicle in an effort to improve driver safety. Um, I mean, I think Tesla would say that their cars are are safe and getting safer all the time. Uh, it's really hard to compare apples to oranges, though, in terms of well, how you know how many cars are on the road and how old are they? And and in, in some ways, Tesla Tesla cars are really safe, like the crumple zone and the fact that they don't have an engine in the front and the, the low center of gravity. I mean, but then the, you know you have to look at the driver behavior too. And any, I mean, to Elon's point, any Tesla accident gets enormous scrutiny, and yes. people you know. People die in car accidents in the United States every day, and you're not seeing headlines about other automakers. Where, where does he fall on the political spectrum? Is he Republican? I know he's worked with with Trump a lot. Is he is he more liberal? Is he libertarian? It seems like he's he's clearly has some libertarian uh, leanings to him. Yeah, I I mean I I don't want to speak for him because that would not be a good idea. But I think that he is, you know, I think he is a sort of very savvy. I mean, he's a very savvy. CEO and that he recognizes the way that politics are played in the United States and he believes very strongly in having a seat at the table. So, for example, when Trump had him on his councils and he got all this flack, oh, my God, Elon, like, how could you be on Trump's council? He was sort of like, listen, I am going to do the best that I can around, you know, immigration and around climate change. And then he was like basically crowdsourcing ideas for immigration reform on Twitter. And and then and then the question was really sort of like, okay, well, what is his line in the sand here? And he, you know, I think really did try to keep the United States in the Paris Climate Accord. And when Trump pulled out, that was it. Elon was like, I'm done. And he left. But I think he'd like made a good faith effort to try to 
have some influence there. And it's like you you either have a seat at the table or not. And like, why not take a seat at the table if you're if you're invited to it? In terms of his political donations, he's donated to both sides of the house, but not in huge numbers. I mean, and if you look at like Tesla and SpaceX in terms of their lobbying spending, it is like far it's like a fraction of what like a gm or a boeing spend but you know like i mean there there's been some stuff lately about how he donated to kevin mccarthy okay well kevin mccarthy like represents the district that spacex is in and you know i don't think that i mean i think he's just donated to both sides but mm-hmm. not in not in very high numbers right and and a lot of people thought when he joined that trump council that that meant that he was in league with trump or that he somehow supported trump i always saw it different i always thought saw it as he just believes that he can do just about anything. I mean, he just he just has a lot of self-belief. And so he thought he could go there and change Trump's mind if he could just sit down with the guy, change Trump's mind about the Paris Accords and climate. And to me, that that ties in with this idea where I think he's, he seems to see himself as a hero, doesn't he? I mean, he went to – when the, the Thai um, soccer team was trapped in a cave, his first impulse was maybe I can save them. You know, maybe I can send my engineers from the boring company to Thailand and, and get them out. Um, when, you know, when he thinks about climate change and uh, the, the future of Earth, he thinks, well, maybe I can help stop climate change by getting us all off of carbon fuels. Maybe I can build the rocket to Mars that will save human civilization. It sounds like delusions of grandeur, but it's not totally delusional because then he then actually does this stuff. What's your what's just what's your theory of what kind of guy he he really is? Does he have a cape that he puts on when he needs to? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he's obviously he's obviously stretched. You know, I I would say I think you know I think he's stretched a little thin, right? Like, did he have to get weighed into the tie thing? I'm not really sure, but like, and he got a lot of flack for that. But he was like, he was in email contact with the people about like the design mm-hmm. for the sub, and he was genuinely trying to help. And I mean, this is a guy who you know he's 47, he's got five young boys. I mean, climate change is ferocious and urgent, and no one is really addressing it. Gover- I mean, the government has completely fallen down on the job. The EPA is rolling back regulations. I mean, you have all these accords that are sort of, you know, but like no one is really tackling it in this sort of big way, the way that he is. Um, and I think that he just is like a man in a hurry because he sees, you know, he talks about things like ocean acidification and when like he unveiled Tesla energy as kind of this like division of Tesla, like he stood in front of thousands of people in LA with like a PowerPoint that had like CO2 emissions. Like, I mean, he's very serious about climate change and I think it frustrates him that other business leaders are not doing more and that like we're still just in this holding pattern where, you know, we're waiting for like consumers to kind of lead the way. And so like if you look at the business decisions that he's made that some people see as crazy, like I think he just is he's anxious to kind of like move the move the needle because ultimately, you know, EVs are still just a fraction of the world's automotive fleet. And even though there are like tons of diehard Tesla fans all around the world, I mean, the truth is that Tesla just sold its 200,000th car in the United States cumulatively, like in July. I mean, they haven't made that many cars. They haven't sold that many cars. They have legions of fans. But like, you know, compared to like a Ford or a GM or a a Toyota, I mean, they're just still really, really small. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think his ultimate vision is you've got a Tesla in your driveway, solar panels on your roof and and a battery in your garage that ties it all together. And then but but if earth doesn't work out then we go to you know then we go to then we go to mars um so it's like fixing earth is plan a and like 
colonizing Mars is maybe the, is maybe the plan B. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is someone you have to. I mean, I guess the thing to remember about Elon Musk is that this is someone who emigrated to the United States, you know, via Canada from South Africa at a very young age. You know, dropped out of Stanford and made his first millions, and I'm talking like almost like three hundred million dollars before he turned thirty. I mean, that is that does something to your head in terms of what you are capable of. I mean, a lot of us when we were in our twenties were still like waitressing and trying to figure out what we were going to do. He was already a millionaire, so then he's like, okay, like what next? Well, I guess I'll start a rocket company. I mean, when you have that kind of wealth and success early on in life, like I think, yeah, like it does something. I mean. Why? Why not keep? Tr- why not keep going? And I don't think he gets enough credit for being so visionary and driven about uh, the the urgency that is climate change. There really aren't other CEOs that are stepping up to the plate in the way he is. Yeah, and I think that, and I think that that's that's why people are really drawn to him. Um, you know, and I've been at like events, like Tesla customer events, like in, in the early days. I mean, now he doesn't really go to them, but you know, there's a, there's the Tesla Motors Club, and in like 2013, he spoke at it. It was just this like small gathering at like a Marriott hotel in Milpitas, and um, I mean, there were like grown men who'd flown in from New Jersey and elsewhere, and they just like stood stood at the microphone and were like, Elon, I just wanted to thank you for giving me hope again. I mean, there is like a real serious affection for this guy because just because of his aspirations. I mean, I don't think that people in the United States, people have ceased to look at political figures. Uh, it's like it's all about sports or or tech leaders. And um, and just this whole idea that he is kind of like nerdy and unpolished and speaks in this sort of cadence and language of engineers and physicists and, you know, makes all these references to science fiction and gamers. It's kind of like revenge of the nerds. I mean, so so there's like a big affection for him from from that community as well. Yeah, so so Elon Musk, the comic book hero, uh, trying to save the world, but it turns out it's a really hard job. And maybe and, shouldn't use Twitter. Uh, <laughs> right, and might be, he might be making it harder on himself with his Twitter habits. But Dana, I really appreciate how you gave us the, the nuanced picture of a, a really polarizing person. I think it's it's too easy to write him off as a, a huckster or a cult leader or too easy to, to worship him as this great tech hero. He's got some of both in him. Dana Hull, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciated your time. My pleasure. One final break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. All right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? So for my tab this week is a story in the Huffington Post by John Cook, who was the editor-in-chief of Gawker, uh, which is no longer a thing. And at that time, Gizmodo was under Gawker. And the story is called... The story behind the story that created a political nightmare for Facebook. It's kind of a mea culpa about this story by somebody who we've had on this show before, uh, Michael Nunez, right? Yeah, Michael Nunez was at, was at Gizmodo. Right, and, yeah. he, uh, and he wrote this story about how Facebook's trending bar and uh, its news feed or to the side of its news feed was curated by people with a bias against conservatives. 
Right. This is that that was a bombshell at the time, right? Yeah, it's it's it sparked kind of the first wave or not the first, but kind of um a big wave of uh critical reporting on Facebook's ability to handle this kind of hyperpartisan political moment that we were starting to realize we were in. Right. And some people have blamed that that piece, as we talked to Mike Nunez about on the show, for uh, the for Facebook then getting scared to use human curators and scared to crack down on fake news because of the big backlash among conservatives that ensued. And, and some people, if you really want to stretch it, you can draw a line from there to, to Trump's success on Facebook's platform and all the Russian uh, you know, misinformation that proliferated during that election and then Trump's eventual election. Right. And so, you know, in this story with John Cook, he kind of goes through uh, whether or not this uh, story by Nunez was was correct to publish or not. Right. Whether it was a real story or not. And uh, what was your what was your takeaway from from Cook's assessment? Yeah, it was kind of both a defense and a mea culpa, right? Like he he defended the the decision to publish it. And a lot of people, again, a lot of people have blamed this story um, for for sensationalizing Facebook's alleged anti-conservative bias and then miss, missing the real issue where Facebook is not properly uh, curating news or distinguishing between legitimate news and fake news on its platform. He defended the piece, but then at the end he did say, look, we knew when we framed it this way, uh, the headline on that piece, I believe, was that Former Facebook workers, colon, we routinely suppressed conservative news. Cook admits that they framed it that way because they wanted to get on Drudge Report and they wanted to rile up conservatives. They thought that was the only way to get through to Facebook. And so he admits that they kind of that they kind of sensationalized it a bit. And he he sort of apologizes for that at the end. Um, and it's, you know, it, different people see it different ways. But some tech reporters were outraged, even at his even at his defense, saying, God, how could you do that? You did it for clicks. And, uh, and and look where we are now. Right. And I mean, you know, and I also wanted to say that one thing Cook does in this is defend Nunez, which I think is really laudable for him as an editor. He says that the story was well reported, that he spent a long time reporting it, that it says nothing to the quality of uh, of of the journalism of um, of his employee at the time. I, I do think blaming any one person is kind of naive in this and, and misses the fact that there's kind of this whole cabal of right-wing lawyers and lobbyists who really worked to kind of orchestrate Facebook's guilt after this happened. And it misses the point that Facebook also has been this kind of thriving haven for right-wing media for about, you know, a decade, right? I I will say that... Uh, as somebody who worked in advocacy and nonprofits for many years before becoming a journalist, it was really clear to to me that uh, people who wanted to forward counterfactual claims about the news were going to Facebook to do that. And unfortunately, that's often the home and not to put like not to say that people who believe in. Uh, in right-wing political theory are counterfactual, but the far right is often home to a lot of counterfactual claims, and, and as is the far left. But certainly Facebook had become, at the time, a place where there was a, a thriving kind of cottage industry of, of right-wing media punditry that wasn't getting airtime, you know, in the pages of the New York Times or, or you know, on Slate.com <laughs> or, you know, in, in on television news as much except on Fox News, perhaps. And so... I do think that all of the kind of uh, negativity that that is now being kind of punted around uh, or pivoting around this kind of article as being kind of the starting point of uh, of people 
kind or, or of the kind of equivocation we're seeing from tech companies saying that like not wanting to piss off conservatives when it comes to say like taking action on Alex Jones who is actually forwarding harmful content that has been um you know, actually inspired real harm in the world, like, you know, Pizzagate, which was one of the theories that Alex Jones talked about, like somebody went in with a loaded gun into a D.C. pizzeria. Uh, the the families of uh, Sandy Hook uh, victims um, are unable to visit the graves of their children because of the harassment that they've received. But uh, but the tiptoeing of social media companies around these issues, people blame on the kind of this article being the start of that. I do think that's naive. I think what I would have liked to seen happen, though, is instead of kind of a re-reporting of this article, which happened at the time, which caused kind of more <laughs> consternation uh, amongst the press and and uh, not just the press, but but the public that were like, oh, Facebook's biased. Instead, people actually looking in uh, to Facebook to see, you know, well, what are conservative voices on Facebook doing? Is there a conservative media economy on Facebook or is there not? Is there a liberal media economy on Facebook or is there not? Uh, and I just don't feel like there was really that in-depth reporting afterwards. It was a lot of re-reporting and kind of a lot of takes. Yeah, definitely a little too simplistic to blame everything on this one story, but I do think it was something of a turning point. We should also note, I think we should disclose here that that John Cook, the author of that story, is the husband of of Slate's executive editor, Alison Benedict. And uh, that doesn't influence uh, how we talk about something like this, but we should definitely disclose it to our listeners anyway. Will, what was your tab this week? All right. I went for a slightly lighter one this Good. week. If you can <laughs> if, if you can call grand theft and uh, and the mysteries left behind by a, a dead couple lighthearted, but but relatively, right? Um, so this was a story from the Washington Post, and the headline was, A Small Town Couple Left Behind a Stolen Painting Worth Over $100 Million and a Big Mystery. This was a couple that pretty much kept to themselves. They lived in the small town of Cliff, New Mexico. And the husband died several years ago. When the wife died, they found in the house, somebody was going through the house and found, oh, here's a cool like mid-century painting. Let's let's see what that's worth. Well, it turned out to be a Willem de Kooning painting that had been stolen 30, 30 or 35 years earlier. It was worth an estimated $160 million. Nobody knew it was there. Nobody knew where it had gone. This is the story of how it might have ended up there and this unassuming couple and the secret life that they might have had uh, going home every night and then looking at their $160 million painting that nobody else could look at and nobody knew they had. Oh, my gosh. I love reading stories about mysteriously stolen paintings. <laughs> um, I don't have much to say on that other than that I want to read it. Uh, I do want to say that there is uh, one more artist that was in the news this week that our readers might be interested in reading more about. And that is the rapper Azealia Banks, who is a very, very talented rapper, but is known for definitely kind of being off the cuff on social media to the point where she um, has had some trouble staying on some platforms because of what she said. She was apparently invited to Elon Musk's home in Los Angeles uh, over the weekend and uh, to, to collaborate potentially with uh, his girlfriend Grimes and, and maybe Musk as well. I'm not sure. But that did not go as planned. And Azealia Banks uh, tw uh, went on Instagram and stories and uh, said some of the funniest things I have Most ever horrible read. Things, horrible. Right? Like funny but awful. Uh, I'm going to say funny, awful, but funny, but you can say <laughs> awful. I'm not sure because I don't know, but I was certainly like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. what Like kind of hero for 
for saying uh, some of these things just so awful and eloquently, I guess. I'm not sure, but just like, you know, insults that I wish I could sling. Uh, I am not going to say any of those things on our show, but I really recommend that you Google this. Look it up. Business Insider had a good story about it. Uh, Just search on Twitter, uh, Azealia Banks Musk, and uh, see what comes up because it is uh, funny, probably awful, uh, but uh, definitely going to make you laugh at some point if you read the whole kerfuffle. Yeah, I I took two things from that. One of which is that Instagram text posts apparently are the new battle rap because that's basically maybe how her, that's just what how she's her doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the other one is a lesson that I think we can all apply to our daily lives, which is do not invite Azalea Banks to your mansion and then leave her there to her own devices for three days. Or anybody. I would not like if you invite a very busy artist to your home to potentially collaborate. Don't um, not do what you say you're going to do. It seems kind of rude. Uh, but she certainly didn't take it well. Anyway, that does it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. We are getting those emails, by the way, folks. Thanks for sending them, and uh, we enjoy reading them, so please continue to do so. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will or Remus. Thanks again to our guest, Dana Hall. You can find her work at Bloomberg.com and on Twitter at Dana Hall, D-A-N-A-H-U-L-L. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time in doing so. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer this week is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studio in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week. Bye.